And there we go. We are back again for another fantastic conversation on the beautiful Mind Game podcast. Um, I'm still in awe of what happened on the weekend, which was quite cool as well. So I'll, we'll get into that before we crack on with today's special guest. And I'm really looking forward to getting a special guest on who I can talk cricket with for the first time in in, in this podcast, I would say, Millie. So Millie, um, it's good to see you again. How are you doing this week? Yeah, I'm, I'm very good. First time forever, I think. I don't think we've ever spoken about cricket and so many other things as well, which I'm really looking forward to getting into because you guys are going to teach me so much about it. <laughs> I'm a little bit of a learner today. So yeah, really good and excited about it. Now, do you know what this one is? It's basically, I was saying to my wife, um, I think after we we met our special guest um, on Friday, it's like, it reminded me of when you're watching Iron Man. And then I think Captain America asked him, he's like, oh, so what is it you do exactly? It's like billionaire playboy philanthropist. We'll keep that in the edit. It's quite funny because I butchered the word philanthropist. I can't help you because I don't know. <laughs> That's fine. That's absolutely fine. But we'll keep it in the edit. So we've literally got someone who, I think I'll introduce you and then you can tell us exactly what you do because I want to do you justice for how multi-skilled you are. Um, so everyone, please welcome to our podcast, Atif Nawaz. Atif, thank you very much for joining our podcast and thank you very much for your kind words and advice on Friday evening. It's nice to see you and it's nice to meet you. Um, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, man. I'm doing I'm doing about as well as somebody who's a a, a billionaire, a philanthropist and a playboy can do. So, um, yeah. <laughs> I, forgot life playboy. In that, I forgot playboy. Oh, my days. Li- life in the philanthropist uh, billionaire world is pretty good. Yeah. And we're working on the playboy. <laughs> needs to be done needs to be done but no if you're okay to just introduce yourself to our guests as well because i remember that you've got at least three or four really solid um solid job roles but i know you've got six or seven in the bag as well from your from your history as well which is great to see so um you're a cricket commentator you're an actor you're a writer you're a stand-up comedian have i what else have i missed what else have i missed well i'm pretty good cleaner available at a very decent hourly uh rate as well if you need somebody to clean your bathrooms or do some hoovering a bit of gardening can do a bit of that as well i'm what getting into the beard trimming game what hoover do i have oh mate i'm I'm all about the old school dustpan and brush like let's bring that back you know it's it's a time of austerity in the country you can't be blowing electricity on hoovers it's time to get the dustpan and brush out that's what i'm saying I say that because I work for a Hoover company as well. So I was going to see if I can get you some free... Wait, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Do you work for a Hoover company? Do you work for a Hoover company or do you work for a vacuum company? A vacuum company. It's not Hoover, is it? It's not Hoover. It's not the brand Hoover. There you go. See, but that would be like me saying I work for a Google company. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah, I get it. But who... who, That brand is so detailed. Yeah, but Hoover ones aren't aren't as good as as other branded ones. We won't say which names they are on the podcast, but um, there are there are other brands available for people out there besides Hoover um, as well. But yeah, <laughs> some like, of them some of them rhyme with Mike Tyson. <laughs> <laughs> some of them are named after animals as well in, in the sea, so we'll see how it goes as well. Um, but like you said, if that, you now, if anyone, now I'm just I bet thinking, you, I bet you, I bet you anybody, about else, it. someone's going to ask you for your for your cleaning services. You know, there's going to be an Asian auntie somewhere that, that's going to be like, oh yeah, I need someone to clean up um, at home with a dustpan and brush. You know, I'm down. Gonna, no. I'm down, auntie. Just make me some nice chana masala, and we're we're good to go. <laughs> Oh my days, what is this? What have I got myself into? <laughs> no, it's absolutely fine. Uh, but no, thank you very much for introducing. I'm pretty sure there's, there's still one or two things that we missed out, but it's absolutely fine. Um, but Atif, I wanted to get um, straight into it. And I wanted to talk to you first, mostly about um, your stand-up career, because 
as I think we've probably just all guessed now, you are a hilarious stand-up comedian. We've seen you in acting shows as well. The main one for me being the Muslamic show on BBC3 that happened um, a couple years ago. And there's some of these sketches that you still see on TikTok, on social media, on Instagram as well, of you just like, it's just it's just so funny seeing it come around as well. But how did that all come about for you personally at Active? How did you get into acting? How did you get into um, basically just getting into this, this side of media, first of all? Well, I mean, like, I trained as an actor. Like, I, you know, I went to drama school, and that was the original game plan. And then comedy was something I just always really enjoyed. Um, acting just wasn't taken off originally. Um, I don't think I had the kind of look that um, casting directors or whatever, you know, I just, there just wasn't a lot of parts there for um, people who looked like me. And I don't mean, like, just generically brown people. I mean, you know... Like, there's definitely parts for people like who look like Riz Ahmed or, like, you know, just the classical handsome dude or, like, you know, the classically unhandsome dude as well. But, like, I felt annoyingly somewhere in the middle of that spectrum. So you kind of, you don't fit any castings. So anyway, stand-up was a great break for me, like, you know, like a breakaway from that, just working on it. I think I was pretty shocking for about the first seven years I was doing stand-up comedy. Like, I always told you it took me seven years to get good at it. And uh, Muslamic was like, oh, I've got, I mean, Muslamic was like a career highlight um you know i reckon you know uh hope hopefully i'll be okay and i'll live a little bit longer but like if i if i died tomorrow people would remember me most for muslamic probably just because like it was such a huge thing like we didn't expect it to be that massive but it was worth like it was worth waiting for because like i've been writing tv shows since i was 18 years old and um you know i've got all the rejection letters from the 13, 14 years that passed in between, you know, like Ali official, the guy who I wrote the show and acted the show with, um, you know, I showed him to him. He couldn't believe it. Like, uh, you know, there's genuinely letters dating back to like 2008 that I've sent to like production companies. Like, yeah, it's not for us, not for us, not for us, not for us. And then, uh, you know, we put this together. Uh, I think I was 34 years old when it came out and, uh, yeah, man, it, it's, it was an amazing feeling. I'm so glad it happened at 34, because like, I really appreciated it. I really, I felt so much gratitude for that moment of having my own like show, words that I'd written, words that I'm performing, and like the whole world's watching. Like you said, like it trended all over the place, and one of the videos ended up doing like 200 million views, and it was the most watched thing. And yeah, it was, uh, it was pretty, it was pretty cool. I wish we got to, to got to do more of it, but uh, I'm, yeah, it was an amazing experience. Muslamic is like a career highlight. Yeah, absolutely. Because when I was looking at it as well, um, one of my favorite ones, I think I mentioned it to you um, in person as well, the, the airport one was something that just springs to mind as well, because you was kind of thinking about it and you was kind of there like, this has definitely happened to me at the airport when you're getting randomly selected. And the worst thing is, it's in the UK and it's not in different countries as well, which is really, yeah. really annoying. Like, well, you know what's fun is like, I've, I've had that experience happen to me at least five times subsequent to the show coming out. Mm. So, I mean, the first time was literally two days after Muslamic came out and it was on BBC One. Uh, I flew to LA just for like a a working holiday, you know, doing some gigs and hanging out. I didn't really get to explore much of LA before that. So um, I think, yeah, I was at Gatwick Airport because I had to be a bit cheap about this because, you know, just because you're famous doesn't mean you have a lot of money. (laughs) Uh, So flying economy from like a, a smaller airport. And of course, I got pulled aside for like random additional security screening. And I just sort of laughed about it. And there was a lady in the queue who was like, I didn't just see you on TV yesterday. Were you, what, did you film that here? I was like, no, we didn't film it here. <laughs> this is a separate screening. It happens quite often. 
But yeah, I, it happens all the time. I mean, three weeks ago, I came back from Japan like a, a couple of weeks ago and I got stopped for uh, additional security screening. And I, I was like in a weird mood. So I actually showed the, the, the guy the sketch on my phone. I'm like, dude, you got to see this. Like, you don't understand how often this happens to me. And he sort of laughed. And he was slightly embarrassed. And I'm like, no, no, it's nothing personal. You're doing your gig, mate. But I just, I just wanted to show you something. And uh, yeah, um, yeah, that was just, it's really cool. I'm, I'm really proud of that. I, that. That one sketch is probably the thing that I'm most proud of in my life in terms of my work yeah it's quite funny as well because when we're watching it back as well and then you're just kind of there like it's so common for so many people to have this happen to them when they land in the uk as opposed to when they're leaving the uk but did you get a lot of feedback from people who actually were watching the show and they thought oh yeah i can relate to this um segment i can relate to this like the muhammad salah gig as well there was a there's a clip that you had that when you and um ali were like doing pretending to be muhammad salah and then russell kane was the one that got the audition was that something that was relatable to a lot of like young asian uh, actors coming in and they could relate to it as well to yourself included Atif? yeah it was i mean yeah that mo Salah one we had a lot of fun with because it was it was just really fun to put together but again it was making a point about uh opportunities and the way castings happen and it's really tough man like, i've never really been in anything on tv that wasn't either made or cast by somebody who's known me for 10 years or something that I wrote physically myself and insisted on being, uh, on being an actor. And so like, it's just a tough gig out there. I still do auditions all the time and I never get stuff, um, which, you know, I used to find quite demoralizing, but now it really informs my stand up comedy. But yeah, you're right. I mean that airport one in particular, it, I, I thought it would be like a specific thing for Muslims and an eye opener for, for non-Muslims, but that's not true at all. Like people who weren't Muslim, there were so many people who reached out and said, this has happened to me. And this has happened to my boyfriend. This has happened to my cousin. This has happened to my dad. Like so many people had gone through that experience and, uh, they related to it. And if they saw the, the sort of the dark humor of it and, um, yeah, it was, it was wonderful, man. It's just wonderful that people can, that you can take an experience like that, uh, approach it with a bit of levity while also just bringing it a bit of a uh, heat and attention. So yeah, it was good. Nah, that's fantastic to hear. Millie, anything to add to that? I just wanted to ask you, how important was that for you to kind of talk about things like this or kind of show the world things like this? Because it's really important that someone's done it. How important was it for you? It was massively important, Millie. Like, for us, we wanted it to be really authentic. Like, there's like 3 million Muslim people in the UK, right? Um, and constantly you have people speaking in blanket tones about them like this is what the muslims of the uk want this is what the muslims of the uk think and that's absolute twaddle because like you can't represent three million people like a homogenous group because each one of them is like a snowflake completely different right so uh i i and when i say snowflake i don't mean that in the modern way people talk about snowflakes i mean that in the individuality of a snowflake or <laughs> someone takes that out of context but yeah i mean we wanted it to be really authentic um we wanted to wanted to reflect an experience that a lot of people would would uh, relate to, but also was really, really something we believed firmly in. And, you know, we were putting it out there on the BBC, making it with BBC Studios. They pushed back on various things and we were like, we absolutely, you know, this we've got this is what we want to do we kind of drew our line in the sand ultimately we didn't make one which was kind of for that reason as well but the, the whole point of it was for it to be authentic something we could put our names to and like me and ali always said like as long as our mums could watch it and uh, not feel embarrassed or cringy or ashamed then we did all right so um yeah i mean we tried anyway to be as authentic as we can i think i think we we at least got that right I think it's brilliant. I think it's really, really brilliant, honestly. And you said you, you kind of carry that through in your stand-up comedian 
role as well. Would you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, like, I mean, when I started doing stand-up, um, sort of in the early days, it was all very sort of crude stuff. Like my favorite stand-ups at the time were people who were quite uh, abrasive and provocative and things like that. And I didn't really, you know, I was just kind of mimicking styles. I didn't really know what I was doing. I was just, okay, so stand-up is what, um, you know, Chris Rock does or stand-up is what Jimmy Carr does or stand-up is what Bill Burr does. But like the truth is, I, it, it's not it's not going to be anything all i'm doing is like a bad bill burr impression when i what i really need to do is do an impression of myself and put my perspective my opinions my experiences out there find a way to you know fit them into a narrative that people can enjoy and engage with so yeah i think it took me a while as i say like seven years before i really got anywhere and um you know i had a fantastic conversation with my mentor uh omid jalili and uh, I told him, like, you know, this is what I was struggling with. He gave me some wonderful advice. And uh, before you know it, I went to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival with um, a show called Muslims Do It Five Times a Day. And, um, you know, that was that was about, um, you know, common misconceptions about Muslims. It was keeping things very simple. But like just from my experience and trying to showcase my personality a bit. And lucky me, it went it went really well and people liked it and, you know, gave me more and more opportunities and. Yeah, I just, it's quite self-indulgent, my comedy, to be honest with you, because I always talk about my perspective on things. But I think that's really important. Like, I think, not that I'm important, but I think having, you know, a unique take or offering a different perspective on things is important. Otherwise, why wouldn't you just go watch anybody else to do stand-up comedy? So, yeah, I try and keep it, keep myself, like, heavily. It's very me-heavy <laughs> when I go to do shows. So to, to interrupt um, the both of you, you said two things that are very, that you said very commonly as well, like very casually. You said one, oh yeah, I went out to LA to to have a working holiday. And the second thing you said was, oh yeah, my mentor, Omid Jalili, who's like one of the most famous like comedians in the UK. And you're just kind of there like, oh yeah, he's my mentor. How cool is that that you get to say things like this? That's it. Yeah, I'm man. Like, I... As well, because that, that, was, that was crazy for me. I, I used to watch Omid on TV and like, I mean, I, I always, I, I used to tell Omid this all the time, uh, that like the, the moment I made the decision to become a stand up comedian or to pursue a career in stand up comedy, uh, was when I saw his live at the Apollo set, the iconic one where he does the, the dancing and all that kind of, like, it was such a cool thing for me because a, here's a guy who looks a bit like me who's got the same skin tone as me, who's making people laugh. He doesn't, it's, it's like, he's made it a well-rounded performance you know this whole spectacle it's not just guy and a mic there's nothing wrong with guy and a girl guy or a girl with a mic there's nothing wrong with that at all but this guy was just he felt larger than life and i really kind of like uh, you know something about that resonated with me so and he was so like giving man like i reached out to him i'm nothing i'm a nobody no real experience no real skill or talent or anything like that and uh, reached out and he had so much advice and he would like give me advice at various points in my career and I remember as recently as 2018, I was doing a show at Leicester Square Theatre. It was a big deal for me. It was my first kind of big show in a big theatre in London. Uh, that was just me by myself. And, um, you know, I invited him. He came down. And, like, when I finished the show, I, A, I could see him in the crowd. But, like, when I finished the show, I went back to my phone. And, like, he had sent me a list of, like, he was basically critiquing the show as it went on. And he said, this bit was hilarious. This bit was amazing. That's a great line. Try this line next time. Maybe add that. This is great. This is so he's literally, like... You know, he doesn't have to, but he's basically giving me this invaluable feedback in real time as my show's playing out. And I was like, oh, man, I love you forever because, like, you, A, just I love your work, but B, the way you 
the, and it's not just me, by the way, there's like a whole generation of South Asian comics who, for some reason, look up to Omid. You know, Ishan Akbar is the same. He loves Omid. He, he works with Omid a bit now. Uh, you know, Tez Ilyas, like there's so many of people, people in that like generation who looked up to this guy and he made himself available to them. He never looked down on them or made them feel less than he's just a wonderful, wonderful man. And as you say, it is an absolute privilege to know him. Did you know before you met him that you wanted to be a comedian? Or was yeah, it after I mean, you met him? You did. Yeah. When I saw him, it was literally the case of watching him on TV. I was watching live at the Apollo. Um, and I used to love live at the Apollo. I used to love Jack D and, uh, uh, you know, I remember when he came on, there was something magnetic about it. And it was, I mean, I mean, I'm giving my age away a bit here, but I remember recording it on a VHS tape at the time and uh, rewatching it over and over again on the VHS tape. And me and my friends, we could do his whole routine to each other, you know, because we loved the little things he would do, like, uh, you know, his impression of Yasser Arafat, the the Libyan uh, president. Like, it was, there were so many bits of it that we just adored, you know, he was like, like it's a bit like you know when you're when you listen to when you're a kid and you listen to a pop song for the first time and you're obsessed with it and you play it over and over and over and over again and you know all the words and your whole life is about it. like that was what Omid was to me like he was the he was my pop star uh, I I didn't even you know at that point I'd never even you know the 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 idea of meeting him face to face was mind blowing there's no chance I'm ever going to get to meet this guy that's crazy but like eventually I would and and um you know it was it was everything I wanted it to be they say don't meet your heroes I'm so glad I did it's really interesting because for me like obviously with football my heroes are always footballers like Ronaldinho and people like that so it's really interesting to see your side of it like with comedy were you always like how did you know you wanted to be a comedian was it from a young age was it from i don't know were you born to do it i guess i don't know i don't think i was born to do it. i don't think i have like a natural talent for comedy or comedic performance necessarily i think like i'm a good i like to think i'm a good writer and i'm a good like actor performer so when i when i do a prepared performance i think i i, I like i like to think i do it quite well but it wasn't like like when i was grew up i wanted to be a my first dream i want to be a professional great player and obviously eventually learned that i don't have the talent for that and i want to be an actor and that's something i'm still pursuing to this day and like you know i've got a few nice credits we talked about islamic but like again it's one of those things that you never really uh you know you're always sort of chasing the dragon and then um i yeah and stand-up was something that i just genuinely enjoyed i looked at someone doing it and thought, that looks like a lot of fun much in the same way as you might go to like I don't know, Alton Towers and see somebody going on Nemesis Inferno or whatever and think, man, that looks fun. I want to do that. Like, how do I do it? Oh, okay. I've got to get in this queue. Okay, cool. Let me get in the queue. And like, in my case, it was like, okay, how do I do this? And, you know, uh, I looked around a little bit, talked to a few people, looked online, found a play, a few open mics and got out there, loved it. Even though I wasn't very good initially, uh, I really... I just really enjoyed doing it. So I just persevered and, you know, I had a job at the time. So I'd go after work and just find gigs and find open mics and people who'll give me some stage time and, you know, watching other comedians as well. Like, I love the format of comedy, like people just using language uh, to make you laugh. It's, it's, a, it's an incredible thing. And um, yeah, it's, just, it's a cool fraternity to be a part of. What about last question for me? I'm just curious. What about the confidence side of it? Like, what about standing in front of an audience? Because there's a lot of people, and we've spoke about this quite a lot in terms of confidence. 
I mean, it it must be nerve wracking, right? Standing in front of an audience and delivering something. What's that like? Were you ever phased by that? Because you you are very confident in yourself and in general. Yeah, and I, that's oddly enough one of the things that never really hit me that much. You know, the idea of being in front of people. Like sometimes you would, but it would be different. In fact, oh my god, there's there's some girl I like in the third row okay i want to you know look cool or like oh my god my parents are coming or uh, oh my god like you know when there's like a big casting director or there's like a big somebody famous or somebody who can do something for your career and all of a sudden the stakes are higher then you feel the nerves a little bit but generally speaking like it's totally cool like when you believe in yourself and you know this many because you know you're a footballer and you're constantly playing in front of crowds like you know sometimes there'll be smaller crowds sometimes there'll be bigger crowds but you know that you have a skill set that you worked hard on you've trained you've built yourself to a level where you're going to do you know what your job is and people are going to enjoy what your job is because uh, you know you know how to do it well so when you have that level of confidence like it's it's nice to feel the energy of the crowd in your case or the audience in my case but it's not um you know it it doesn't have to be a handicap like it, sh- it doesn't have to be something that uh that holds you back in any way like you can you know, if anything, it can spur you on. It can be a boost. Mm-hmm. Definitely, yeah. Uh, yeah, I agree, definitely. Like, when we have bigger crowds in front of us, we tend to play better because we do feel their energy. Like, And it's just something that's kind of a given. Do you know what I mean? And when the opposition has a bigger crowd, you can feel it definitely. When you're playing away, you can definitely feel it. So, yeah, I mean, for me, it's taken me a long time to get used to the crowd and I think for you, yeah, I mean, you you live off it, don't you? So, no, it's great to hear. It's great to kind of compare as well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think, yeah, you know, I the only thing I would add is like in stand-up, I still enjoy the smaller crowds. So like for me, like I see, you know, some super famous comedians can play like arenas and really big stadiums and things like that. Whereas like, you know, for me, comedy is at its best in a small room when it's like an intimate experience there's like 150 200 people in the room and just you and uh you know and you feel like you can share things it feels like happening like it's just you guys are sharing something very specific whereas like when there's like you know 10,000 people in the room uh i mean i don't know i've never done a 10,000 uh seater event or anything like that but when i want to look at people like omid or paul chowdhury or you know um ramesh or all these great comedians like they it's it's a different experience it's almost like watching a concert people are eating popcorn people are talking to each other you know there's people walking around selling stuff like there's a lot going on while you're trying to do your performance and i understand the the kind of the business side of it and i'm sure a lot of people enjoy it too but for me the best comedy is like small when it's everybody and it's you and you're in a tiny space like that's that's the vibe question for both of you then um we'll go for atif first and we'll go for millie What's the best crowd you both performed in? Um, not, Billy, not you go biggest. first. I'm going to need a second. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll go first. The best crowd. Um, I would say the biggest crowd. We, When I was in Italy, we played against Juventus and it was away. And we played in a city called Trieste, Trieste, however you want to pronounce it. And yeah, that was the biggest crowd. I think it was, I'm not sure how many, but the whole stand was like filled. Like the stand was huge and it was filled and yeah I mean playing against Juventus it was massive but the crowd got behind us and we did all right I'm not going to say the score but we did all right let's say that (laughs) and then to be fair we did play Ewood a few months ago and that was a really really good crowd and that's what I remember because the crowd really got behind us and we got the result Uh, maybe like it was a balanced game but fine like 
we we dug deep and we got the result as a result of the crowd getting behind us. So that was memorable, really, at Ewood. Yeah. Go on, Atty. That was very short to think about. <laughs> no, no, that's cool. Oddly enough, you know what? My favourite was at Juventus as well. Like, we did this... No, no, it wasn't. Uh, I, 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 I was going to say. <laughs> I, uh, I, no, I think my... I, I don't know. It's very hard to say. Probably Leicester Square Theatre, you know, because it was a big solo show. And, like, I managed to sell it out um, just on my own name. It was before Muslamic as well. So it's not like I was, like, a TV person. I was just a comedian. So just on my comedy reputation to sell out... Uh, a big iconic theatre in London, very expensive tickets as well. Not that I saw any of that, <laughs> but like, you know, that's the way they price the theatres in London. Um, that was pretty cool. But like, you know, I generally, I love going to the Glee Club in Birmingham. Like it's what was probably my favourite comedy club in the country to perform at. Like the Glee Club in Birmingham is just such a vibe, um, as is the Frog and Bucket in Manchester, as is the Stand in Edinburgh uh, and in um, uh, Glasgow as well. Like there's so many great places. Um yeah, like it's hard to pick pick out any specific. I've been going a long time, guys. Like you got to remember, I started when I was like, tw- like nearly, nearly like seventeen years. I've been doing stand up comedy now, so I've I'm starting to forget things. Like you know, I did. I did. Somebody reminded me that I did a gig in Malta. In fact, I did a gig on TV in Malta. So it was like for the Maltese television or whatever it was, and uh, that was that was a really memorable night as well. Like I remember that was that was really cool. So. um yeah, too many, too many to choose. Just let's just say Juventus. <laughs> Juventus collectively. <laughs> nah, that's brilliant. That's so funny. And one last question on stand-up comedy before we move on to our next topic, Atif. Um, literally, what's the next goal for stand-up comedy for your, for yourself? Have you got anything in mind? Any other goals? Edinburgh Comedy Festival? What have we got? I've done the Edinburgh Fringe like four times. Um, at mixed. Uh, uh, experiences generally liked it obviously I owe a lot of my um, sort of success to the first two years at least and the fourth year but yeah I think I don't really have any specific goals to be honest with you man to be like a lot of people I want to make it get a Netflix special I must get an Amazon Prime but I need to be on BBC Mock the Week all that like to be honest with you if those things come that's very cool but like my primary goal is to just keep enjoying my work like you know when you're one of those lucky people that gets to do something you love for a living like it shouldn't ever really feel like work and like i i'm i maybe i'm guilty of not being super tactical about the way i approach it but like i i have some you know some things that i do every year that i really really enjoy like there's a comedy tour we do for charity every december i love doing that um you know like i I just really want to keep enjoying my work and if i can keep making a living through it um that's that's kind of all i want there's a hidden beauty in that, that definitely for anyone listening as well. It goes to show you don't have to do things for the sake of doing things or hitting goals that other people have got. It's the fact that you're enjoying it and you're content with how it's working for you as well. And that's really nice to hear the way that you put that as well, Atif. So thank you very much um, for going through that as well. Now, I know you did tell me on on Friday that it was a topic you didn't want to talk about. So we'll talk about that later on at the end because I know it's not one of the better times for you to talk about cricket. So I think we'll move on to basically you hosting your own kind of podcast as well and being part of podcasts and being part of, um, yeah, how, how that has come about as well. Because like we said it before, you've got so many different specialties of how you're working as a freelancer. It's fantastic to see. Millie and I are hosting our own kind of podcast. We're doing quite well i would say hopefully we can do better but you've done amazing over the last few years as well so just for our listeners who don't know about your podcasting abilities that if why didn't you big yourself up as well because again i can't do you justice for how well you've done with your podcast over the last few years so 
Um, I'll do this very kind. The truth is I haven't done a podcast for a while now. Like I pop up on BBC's uh, TMS podcast, depending on what's happening in the cricket. And prior to that, I did do uh, the Dusra podcast, which was like mm. a cricket, a South Asian cricket podcast, again, for the BBC with uh, Isha Guha and Ankur Desai, both of whom I love um, immensely. They're just great people. And, um, you know, we, there was such a great experience, just like every week messing about talking about cricket. Um, yeah, the truth is like, the three of us, even though like it was like it's got a little cult following that podcast, uh, everybody sort of went off and did different things. Like Ankur Desai got a huge show on the BBC Asian Network that required a lot more of his time and attention, and he's doing brilliantly in that. Uh, Isha Guha obviously went from strength to strength, one of the biggest and probably, in my opinion, one of the best sports presenters in the world, um, and uh, massively in demand because of it. And, and uh, then you know, cricketer as well. So she's got yeah, of that. course, World Cup winning, World Cup winning World England Cup cricketer, winning, of course, cricketer. yeah. So, you know, and, you know, she's absolutely wonderful. And, you know, even though she's younger than me, uh, she always felt, I always tell her this, her and Ebony Rainford Brent, like, even though they're both younger than me, they both sort of feel like older sisters mm. because of the way they're so, they guide you, they protect you, they give you advice. And they're both amazing. Another, you know, just two amazing people. I'm just so thrilled to have the chance to work with them as often as I do. And yeah, so that the podcast kind of went away for that reason. But who knows? Might might pull another one up at some stage. I've had a few people talk to me about various things recently, but this, you know, there's only so many directions you can get pulled in Amazon. Like I always tell people this, try and save like you don't have to put all of yourself out there all the time. Like, you know, I tell young people, I say young people like I'm a seven hundred year old person, but you know, people in their twenties or like teens who are like blogging all the time or putting stuff on their Instagram story. And then they do, like, I've seen people do this. Like oh, I got this picture of my food for my Instagram story and this picture of my food for my Snapchat story. And this is for my B reel. And this is for my Twitter and this is for my Facebook. And this is, and I'm like, dude, your food is cold, bro. <laughs> like you just need to just eat the thing, right? Just eat the thing. Right. Just the worst give, thing when, when people do that is during Ramadan when you're with family as well. And then you're just kind of there, like you've been fasting all day and then what happens, they're still taking pictures. I like, just leave it. I've stopped going out with I've friends stopped. because they do that. I just go, I just stay I, home with my family or my wife. It's just so much easier to just eat. People I, I've just stopped finding, uh, I've just stopped finding food snaps appetizing. Like sometimes I'll just see one. I'm like, Oh, that's interesting. Where was that? And I'll reply. I'm like, oh, okay. Where is that? And then, you know, maybe if I've got a, a special occasion or some want to go somewhere, oh, okay, let me go check out that place I saw on uh, TikTok or whatever. But generally speaking, like when I, when I say like, don't put all of yourself out there, it's okay to not always be thinking of the world in the through the lens of content right everybody kind of oh, this is content well, i'm going to go to the park and meet my friend that's content i'm going to go this is content like you don't have to think of everything as content sometimes it's okay to just have some stuff for you and uh you know i i, I try and take that really really seriously you know like um i try and you know just look after my mind a little bit give myself that time to breathe that space to come up with new ideas as well and i know like, i'm not like i'm not like a genius or anything so i i need a lot of time to you know, just buffer in my head and just let things load or, you know, just uh, de declutter things that are in there. So, um, yeah, like, you know, podcast wise, nothing on the horizon right now, but I'm on yours, man. So after this, I'm fully expecting, you know, Hamza and Millie fans to just be like run knocking my door over, begging me to get, uh, get, get out there and join their podcasts. Yeah, it needs to be done. It needs to be done, especially after this episode as well. It's just the fact that, um, <laughs> You mentioned about having a cult um, following for your Deucer podcast. That was the first cricket podcast <laughs> I ever listened to. And, and that's a fact. Um, I appreciate that, man. Thank you. You're the one. Oh, no, no, no. That's good. That's good. I'm the only it. one keeping you going. I appreciate that, it. Was it. that was it. That was it. That was it. That was it. 
No, but honestly, at the time as well, because it's just it's just so nice to see. Again, I don't want to beat the bush as we always kind of do. A million that we know that we don't do it a lot, but the fact that we had representation in mainstream media talking about cricket from a different perspective, from a woman's perspective, from a man's perspective as well, that were not just like professional former cr- professional cricket players as well. It was really refreshing to see, and it's really nice to hear as well. And just like you said as well about Isha going Isha Gua being one of the the top presenters like you're just seeing her everywhere on television and it's it's outstanding really i'm really proud to see representation like that and especially with yourself as well and i think merely i think this is where we have a segue into cricket as well because i think it's a good time to bring up cricket as well um that's it so we won't talk about certain things like you said on friday so it's absolutely fine so we'll keep it light-hearted and we'll keep it easy as well you are a cricket commentator for the bbc how cool is that it's amazing. It means I literally get paid to watch cricket matches. Like, Hamza, I can't tell you, bro. If, I, if somebody told me when I was eight years old that one day someone's going to give you a pass and you're going to wear this pass around your neck and it's going to let you go into any cricket ground in the country and you're going to go and sit in the very best seat you possibly can in the stadium, whatever you want to eat, somebody will bring to you, right? All you got to do is talk about the game and then they will pay you for the privilege and they might even get you transport from there and to a very, very nice hotel and then back home as well. Like, bro, it is the dream gig. I can't explain to you how thrilled I am every time I go to work to do cricket commentary uh, or any kind of cricket broadcasting for the BBC. Like, it's just the, um, it's amazing. Like, it, I've, I've had so many experiences that I like that I have to pinch myself. So many cricketers that I'm just casually hanging out with, you know, or cricketers are just in, interacting with me like I'm part of their, like, like I'm, like I'm on their level. I'm like, bro, come on. Like, you know, I remember one time I was with Wasim Akram and Wakar Yunus, right? I know, just the start of that sentence. But I remember vividly, I'm standing in between them on a balcony at Headingley in Leeds. And, uh, you know, these are two legends, two people who have had posters of in my wall growing up, right? And, uh, you know, one of them just turns to me and says, oh, Atif, what do you think? So what do you think is a good score on this pitch? And I'm like, what, wait, you're asking me? You're asking me what a good score on this pitch is? Like, that, I just kind of go, yeah, I think like, like 260, 270 would be good here. And then the other one says, yeah, yeah, I think so. I think 260, 70 would be good. And I'm like, no, not only has one person asked me to impart wisdom, but the other has now endorsed that wisdom. Like, bro, it's it's mind-boggling to to be in that space, to be near those people, but then to engage with these people, for them to give you, like, what, bro, I, it blows my mind. And it's been several years now that I've been doing it, and it just doesn't get old. Like, I never, like, think, oh, God, another day at Lord's. Like, that will never happen in my lifetime. That feeling will never happen. Ugh, got to go to Lord's again today. Ugh. Oh, I bet it's only mushroom sandwiches today. Like now, nah, bro, like it's exquisite. It's like it's it's a dream, dream, dream gig, and I'm so thrilled I get to do it. It's just unbelievable as well, and it's just again one of those things that what I really wanted to talk to you about as well is how you kind of did during the lockdown as well, because that was when Pakistan were playing England at uh, England as well, and I remember watching a couple of games for the first time being live on the BBC, which was incredible to see, and I see your face on there, I see Ishagur's face on there as well, and it was amazing, but. How did you all kind of do during the lockdown? Like, obviously, you had to do things differently. The players had to kind of do things differently as well. Did you have many tough challenges there as well? Like, with the whole COVID situation, with the bubble thing, were you involved in the bubble? How did it kind of work for yourself? Yeah, so all of the broadcasters and the players had to be in a bio bubble for the test series. So first, first it was England-West Indies. That was in a bio bubble. And then it was uh, England versus Pakistan. And I remember I had to go to Southampton 
uh, the Aegeus Bowl in Southampton. It has a hotel built into the ground and uh, basically had to live there for like three weeks while the two back-to-back test matches happened there. And yeah, you, it was very surreal. You had to sit there and eat by yourself and, you know, but also like I could tell everybody was really struggling with it. They were like, oh, I miss my family. I want to go see my kids. I want to go do this. I want to just go outside, have some freedom. But I'll be very honest with you guys. Like I had like an amazing time. Like I was so happy. Like, bro, not only am I now getting paid to watch cricket and I'm in a cricket ground and I'm living in a cricket ground. Like I'm literally like locked in a cricket ground with people who are my heroes like, you know what, at like a normal cricket match, all these broadcasters will come and they'll do their job and you might say hello. And then at the end of the game, everybody buggers off and they go do whatever it is they want to do. Whereas like when they can't go anywhere, they're, fo- they're forced to socialize with you. Like, so all of a sudden I'm like, yeah, man, my name's Atif and I'm, you're stuck with me for a few weeks. So we're going to might as well have a chat, bro. How's it, how's it going, David Gower? How's it going, uh, Nasser Hussain? How's it going, uh, Wasi Makram, Michael Holding, Shane Warne, may rest in peace. Like, you know, I had all these incredible, incredible interactions. Like, it was a tough time, obviously, for broadcasters and, you know, so- social distancing and all sorts. We did, you know, everything was adhered to, obviously. But I, uh, yeah, for me, it was a really wonderful time. Like, I might have been the only person who enjoyed it as much as I did. That's just so refreshing to hear as well. Because we saw that um, when we were watching you on, on, the, on the pitch as well. It was fantastic to really see how your energy literally as you're doing now comes across when you're when you're broadcasting it's fantastic to really enjoy because it's a breath of fresh air from what i've seen personally which is really nice to see um going forward but now i just kind of wanted to know about um i think Millie will kind of ask you questions around this as well but how did you kind of cope through that kind of lockdown as well because for me personally if i was a stand-up comedian wouldn't you just go into like youtube and watch your videos back or did you have other coping <laughs> mechanisms as well well, to be honest with you, up and going into that lockdown, I'd been on the road like nonstop, whether it was cricket or stand-up comedy, especially after Muslimic, I was getting booked left, right and center. So like, I was traveling ev- almost every day. I think in 2019, I spent less than 30 days at home right in that, in that calendar year. So I, other, every other day I was traveling. So that's more than 300 days in a year. So when the lockdown came, I know a lot of comics were really struggling with it. Like they missed being on stage. They missed that stage time, that adrenaline rush, all that kind of stuff. But for me, it wasn't the worst thing in the world just to get a little break from it, you know, catch up on my reading. There were so many books I wanted to catch up on. And obviously it's just some family time. Like my, I hadn't seen my parents properly for a while because they live abroad, but they were here during the lockdown. So, you know, it was really nice to have that bonding time with my family and you know, it was just really good fun. I mean, just shortly before the lockdown as well, I'd gone through a divorce. Um, so like, you know, it could have been quite a dark time, but like it worked out nicely just to have that concentrated family time, you know, where everybody's there and supporting you. And, you know, you get to think of life in fresh perspectives and be grateful for the small things like your, the small things that are really the big things like your health and, you know, the, the, your loved ones being around you and stuff. So, um yeah it was it, you know it, it, was, it was sort of tough at times like i missed people a little bit but generally speaking it was it was okay to just take a step back and just like you know breathe and just kind of wash the world off you for a minute do you ever do that now atif do you ever take time now because i was the same i took a lot of time in the lockdown but then now i feel like a few years on everything catches up with you and you keep going faster and faster but did you do you ever kind of take time now like you did in the lockdown? Absolutely. Uh, I do. I make sure I put, take some time out for myself. Uh, this year had been really long, really stressful. Obviously, it's been great because, like, 
I got to, you know, presenting today at the test, this, which is a new thing I did this year. It's a big TV show, but with a cricket a highlight show on the BBC. So that was a huge gig, but it came with a lot of pressure and a lot of, you know, stress. And you're carrying that all, all summer and things like that. And I'm working almost every day on different competitions and gigs and blah, 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 blah. So when I, I had an opportunity, like I had, you have to be quite disciplined about it. I had this opportunity to travel, right? So I had like eight days off in October. So I'm like, right, I've always wanted to go to Japan what's the rules and it turned out that literally the day i was looking they had just eased lockdown rules in uh, or sort of travel rules for japan so you can actually go to japan and you know since i was eight i had this dream of going to, to japan ever since my dad and mum and dad bought me my first nintendo uh, entertainment system so it was like in the early 90s and in 92 i think it was when they bought it for me and I was, ever since i was fascinated japanese culture japanese wrestling anime street fighter 2 nintendo all this stuff right i really wanted to go there uh, and then I did, I just went over, you know, put on my WhatsApp status in Japan, different time zone. Please leave me alone if you can. Um, checked in with the family every couple of days, but generally just detached and didn't really look at social media, didn't do anything. Just immersed myself in a different world, speaking Japanese, you know, eating Japanese food, seeing these amazing things uh, in Tokyo that uh, I, I really wanted to, I wanted to see my whole life. So yeah, I, I try and take that time for myself every year where it's just me and I go away somewhere and I just enjoy myself and, and do all the things that I love. Um, and yeah, and occasionally I'll do one trip a year with my mom and dad as well. Like they're, they're getting up there in age. So I like to just, um, take them places. And it's not like I have this obligation that we do things for mom and dad, oh, but I take mom and dad. Like I genuinely really enjoy it. We went to Marmaris in Turkey this year and we had such a great time, the three of us together, just eating constantly and like moving around enjoying the sun and the pools and the beach and the shopping and like you know it's nice you take those little times and you know you just let yourself refresh and feel good and come back ready to attack life harder you like different foods <laughs> I, uh, I i do i i can't lie i do like very different foods i grew up a very fussy eater but um you know through various um relationships in my life i've been Exposed to different cuisines and forced to like just be a bit more broader and like now i like so many different things what what what, what phrases did you learn in japan because i told me on one of our first or second episodes i knew he was going to ask this i, I, I knew, knew it i knew i knew how to say it because you mentioned that you learned the phrases as well um but what phrases did you learn in japan because when i went to japan like five six years ago i was again just like learning japanese when google translate was starting to become a big thing offline as well so that was really good but did you learn anything in particular did you learn um how to like order in like halal food and stuff like that as well how to get no alcohol in your food did you, did you learn any of that or was it just like no fun phrases it was it was mostly hello and goodbye and you know it's konnichiwa and sayonara and uh sumimasen which is excuse me that was very useful and kudasai and uh, arigato maiso uh so like phrases like that which make it look like you're at least trying to make an effort and not just being like loudly in english gesticulating wildly to people uh, although i did google translate is incredible now by the way i can tell you like you just type in what you want it to say and it'll translate it in pitch perfect japanese to the person the only annoying thing is they'll reply in japanese and then you won't know what they're saying so you know that's the only sort of downside if the answer can't be done via a point or a number you might struggle but also it's just fun to listen i, I actually think it's a really beautiful language just to just to listen to people speak it i just really enjoyed you know being around it um, and I, I, I will definitely go again at some point and I'll learn more. And then before I go, I'll come on your podcast and, and drop some Japanese and impress people. 
Millie, you're gonna have to play football in Japan now as well to complete this trio of us going to Japan. <laughs> that's right. That's all right with me. I'm down with that. Be like Iniesta going out to Japan and representing Spain. You can be out there representing women's football uh, from England as well. That'd be sick. That'd be so so cool. Last thing, what was the best food from Japan? I wanted to get that one in. There was some, there were some really really nice things, but um, you could you could have like. I'm going to give myself away by being a big dessert guy. But what I will say is, right, my favorite thing that I ate there, this sounds really cheesy, is I was playing Street Fighter 2 in an arcade in a place called Akihabara. And, like, I'm on the seventh floor of this building, and I'm kind of hungry. I've just realized I've been playing Street Fighter for, like, four hours, and I haven't eaten anything. So I look around, and there's a vending machine, as there inevitably is in Tokyo. Every five yards away from you at any given time is a vending machine. And the vending machine has noodles in it, like noodles in a pot right cup noodles they call them there and uh next to it is a hot water machine and they've got a separate area for you to sit and eat you can't just eat anywhere in japan you got to eat in designated eating areas so i went over to that cup noodle uh machine picked out a cup spicy tomato uh put some hot water in there uh pulled out some chopsticks sat there ate them had a wonderful time pulled out a melon fanta yep melon fanta because they have that there drank it went and played street fire again for three hours what a day Sounds great. <laughs> it's, the, it's just the life. It's just the life that you got there as well. That's how you spend time in in Haki. Is it Akihabara that you were as well? The arcade. Yeah. Street? Akihabara. Yeah. 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 What a place as well. That's so fun to go to as well. So busy, but so enjoyable as well. When I was there, I was just quite quoting Tokyo Drift, which is quite funny as well. So just like <laughs> just making so many Fast and Furious references there as well. I apologize to my cousins who I went to Japan with as well, which is crazy. But um, but before we move on to um, the cricket again, I just wanted to kind of know as well, how important was it to t- kind of just detach from everything as well? Because we've spoken about this as well on our podcast about having, just like you kind of said as well, not everything's got to be content, not everything's got to be shared. How important is it for you that that was such a uh, monumental kind of uh, life lesson for you as well and, and for anyone else listening as well? Why was it so important for you to kind of detach, take your own kind of me time as well? Um, just for yourself, Hatter. Yeah, because like you know, I, you you spend so much time exposed to people, especially if you're like, like if, as a cricket person, I'm constantly like putting my opinion out there about cricket, right? So, like you know, this guy did well, this girl didn't do so well. This is what this girl needs to do. This is what this guy needs to do. Like you know, you're constantly sharing opinions, and people can disagree with you quite aggressively, you know, like b- people on social media don't always have filters. You know, I try and be very polite, uh, like, you know, but sometimes like, you know, when you're, when you're an overly polite person like myself, right. The downside of that is like, you're, you're kind of absorbing people's stress or um, rudeness sometimes. And you're just absorbing it. It's below the surface. And you kind of worry that it's going to just, you know, like one day you'll just lash out at somebody on Twitter and get canceled. So um, like, you know, it's really important to just let like, let a little bit of steam out of the pressure cooker, you know, just let a little bit of steam out all the time. Just keep letting out that steam. And, uh, you know, it, it just evens you out a little bit, makes you a little bit more stable mentally and all that kind of stuff. Now I'm a complete hypocrite. I've just realized because I, I went to Japan with the intention of breaking off from the world, but I ended up making a 40 minute vlog about it, uh, which I posted on my YouTube channel. <laughs> so there's like a 40 minute video, which nobody wants to see other than maybe my family. And some of my friends, but I put it on YouTube as well, just sharing my experience uh, of being in Japan. And um, it was like, you know, I, but the thing is, I, it wasn't from a place of like, oh, content. It was more from like, oh, man, like this was such a cool place. I really just want to share what it was I was doing there. I think it will inspire other people to, to go there and, 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 and hang out there, you know? 
I tried doing that as well, but I've got like, I went to like six different places in Japan and I'm just like, how do I break it down? So I've got my own kind of, ch- for anyone listening, I've got my own kind of YouTube channel that I haven't used for a while where it's just showing off my little travel videos as well. So I've gone to like Portugal, Morocco, and I videoed it with my GoPro. The first one I went to was Japan, but I've, for the last six years, I've not actually made a proper full on video of it as well. So maybe after have to take inspiration from you there, I see if I can actually finally get it done and finally get um, all the different places I did, like Nagoya, Mount Fuji, Tokyo, Kyoto, all of them, get them all done because I think I'll have a watch of that video later on now. Now I know that you've got a YouTube channel as well. Yeah, yeah. You, you watch it. It's called First Time in Tokyo. Uh, have a little watch. And, you know, I edited the whole thing because I had to take connecting flights because, you know, again, lack of. So uh, if you're listening, BBC, hook a brother up, right? <laughs> so anyway, I, I mean, I, I took a connecting flight. So it took me like 22 hours there and 22 hours back. So that's a lot of time on a plane to edit, right? So that's when I thought, like, I can't, I'm one of those people who can't sleep on planes, despite the fact that I'm constantly on one. So I'm always like just editing, 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 editing and I had it all packaged and ready to go. And by the time I landed at Heathrow, well, I suppose I came to Heathrow this time. So things are looking slightly better up, but both slightly up. Things are on the up slightly. Uh, yeah, by the time I landed, I was ready to hit the upload button. And by the time I was done with the guy uh, um, for the additional security screening, I think it was already uploaded on my YouTube channel. So it made good use of my time. <laughs> no, we got through it in the end. Hopefully the guy at the security actually watched that video as well, which needed to be done um, for Tokyo as well. This is where I went. I was completely safe. The people <laughs> around me were safe as well. Uh, unbelievable, unbelievable. Right, before we wrap up the podcast, this is where I do need to ask my kind of questions regarding cricket to you, Atif. So it's going to be very simple ones. They're not going to be politically dividing in any kind of way or career-threatening at all. Just nice and simple. They're going to be very, very easy ones. First question, what's your favourite moment of cricket in commentary that you have done? Uh, This is very easy. It was uh, commentating on Pakistan versus India in the 2021 uh, T20 World Cup, uh, I got to be on for the final moments when um, Pakistan hit the winning runs and beat India for the very first time in a World Cup and like in emphatic fashion by 10 wickets. It's so cool. Again, I've got I've still yes, got a clip of that. 10 wickets. Know? Yeah, I've still got the clip of my commentary on that. You can just see me smiling all the way through it. Um, maybe not my most objective time on commentary, but I really, it was a, it was a very cool moment to call. So I was pleased I got to do that. It's number one with a bullet. Easy. No, that's nice to hear as well, which is very good. Uh, second question, who are your top three cricket players of all time? Oh, man, we can't do that. That's... A... All right. Uh, uh, Graham Hick. I know that surprises people, but I just I don't know why. I grew up loving Graham Hick. He played for Worcestershire. Remember, and, I said uh, favourite, so it doesn't have to be best. That's perfectly fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just loved him. Like he played for Worcester. I didn't even know what Worcestershire was. I'd never been to Worcestershire. I couldn't tell you where it was on a map, but like I loved Worcestershire because Graham Hick played for them. And I even tried to eat Worcestershire sauce flavored crisps, uh, <laughs> even though I didn't, I didn't really like the taste of it, but I bought loads of them just because Graham Hick was Worcestershire. So Graham Hick is one. Um, uh, probably uh, Wasim Akram is there as well. And uh, Amir Sohail, like again, is a, a Pakistani uh, top order batter from the mid the early 90s to the mid 90s and i always really enjoyed watching him back he was always one of my favorites um so they like people will extrapolate this and be like well this person's better or that person's better but these three i really like i mean to be honest with you it's the kind of thing that's quite variable it changes all the time who i like who i don't like but like those are the first three that came to mind so that must mean something definitely it's all about impulse as well straight away it comes up in your mind as well which is very good and last question for me regarding cricket is who's the most famous cricketer you've ever met 
Oh, it's hard to say because I've met a few, quite a few now. Um, who's more famous? Wasim Akram, Shane Warne, Jimmy Anderson, um, Viv- Vivian Richards, uh, Sir Vivian Richards, Brian Lara, uh, Rohit Sharma, Virat Kohli. Like there's, there's quite a few, bro. I mean, we like again. They I don't know who's most famous. The they just well, that, I, the this is the joy of it, man. And that's not even, I'm not even scratching the surface. Like, I, actually, I made a TikTok video earlier this year, which was, it was called Cricketers I've Interviewed This Year. And um, it's just a list of all sorts of, like just photos of me with various cricketers that I'm commentating on. It's very uh, commentating with or interviewing or things like that. Um, it's very hard to say because I don't know who's considered most famous. But um, yeah, I, I think, I think Shane Warne was quite special. Like, you know, he's not, no longer with us. And uh, I was always a huge fan growing up of his bowling. And, um, you know, I'm really glad I got a chance to tell him uh, that I was a big fan of his, like, face-to-face uh, before he passed away. Because there's loads of people in my life whose work I've really enjoyed. And I'm one of those people, Hamza, that likes to go and, like, tell people when I really enjoy their work. Like, you know, some people are like, oh, I, I want to look cool. I'm like, I love going over to people that I don't know uh, whose work I've followed, whose work I've adored and said, listen, uh, I, I've always been a huge fan. I've loved what you've done. I love what you've achieved and I find it very inspiring and very enjoyable. So thank you for that. And I wanted to say that to you, but I think there's nothing wrong with that. And I like to do that often. I got to do that with Shane Warne. There were people that, uh, that, um, have passed away that I've always wanted to say that to that. I never got the chance to, but I did get a chance to say that Shane Warne. So for this, for that reason, let's say Shane Warne. Shane Warne. By the way, I may he rest in peace. peace. May he rest in peace. Indeed. I've said that to you on Friday, Atif, and I've said that to you, Millie, in person multiple times as well. So I'm I'm seconding you with that as well. So it's pretty good um, that you're in the same boat as me, which is which is very nice. But no, thank you very much for answering our questions on cricket. Hopefully they weren't too tricky or and you, you answered <laughs> them very well, which is very good. Um, Millie, if you have any final questions, because you, you love to ask these kind of questions at the end, fire away, my friend. Yeah, I've got a couple for you, Atif. First one. What is one standout thing about stand-up? One standout thing about stand-up is like the feeling it gives you is unlike anything else. Like I love all the things that I get to do. I love making television. I like love watching cricket and commenting cricket. But stand-up comedy, like the feeling of, you know, creating a feeling, right? That's what you're doing. You're creating feelings, right? You're making someone feel something and respond in a specific way. And when you get like, when you write something down and then you work on it and you tweak it and you adjust it and you reword it and you do also, and you come back out and you do it again and you get that response from the audience that you wanted, you feel so powerful. Like you've got, you've got the full infinity gauntlet, like all the infinity stones are there. Like you are, you know, you are Thanos at that point um it's it's i don't know it's a weird avengers reference for no reason but yeah i, I love I, it's the very, reference it's, it's such a sick it's a, reference. I love it. it's, fantastic. it's a cool feeling it's a great it's an it's an undescribable feeling and, and and there's very few things in life that can mimic that i think nice really nice last one from me what is this is quite a heavy one what is the best lesson you've learned it can be anything the best lesson you've learned so far in your career yeah, it's to, when you choose to do things, know why you're choosing to do them, right? So I love doing stand-up comedy, and that's why I do stand-up comedy. Like I don't have this this um, 
condition with stand-up comedy that it must make me a megastar. It must make me a millionaire. It must make me... Like, no, I just want to enjoy it. And it's nice to make, a, like, a living from it. Wonderful. But I don't... It doesn't need to be, like, crazy elaborate. I don't need to be making great success all the time. I just need to be enjoying it, feeling good about it. If you enjoy your work, like, whatever it is you choose to, if you want to become a comedian, a performer, an actor, a footballer, whatever, do these things. Go out there, join a football club, join a cricket club, go to a comedy club. Like, do all these things. Do them because you want to do them and you love to do them and you enjoy doing them. Don't do them because you think that's your route to stardom or fame or whatever. There's other ways to try and get famous and there's certainly better ways to make money because these are not stable professions. But like when you do these things, you've got to remember that you love them. Even when there's those odd days where things aren't going your way or there's things, days where things awkward or annoying things are happening this goes wrong that goes wrong there's a sequence it feels like everything's going wrong just remember how privileged you are to get to do something you love for a living all the time and uh, just let that positive vibe just flow through you i think that's such a great message that's such a great message and there's a lot to learn from you as well you give so like honestly throughout this whole podcast i've been sat here i've been laughing good job my mic wasn't on for all of it because i was literally just laughing but i've been learning as well from you so Great message. And I was going to actually ask you about success. That was going to be one of my questions. But then I thought, you're the type of guy that enjoys the journey. That's what you're about. That's who you are. So, yeah, I mean, brilliant way to end it as well. No, I just wanted to say thank you very much, Hattie, for your, for your kind words, for your knowledge, and just for letting us be a part of your journey for, this, for, this, for today as well, at least. It was really nice to learn from you, really nice to see like I said before, all the different skill sets that you've got, you've gone through them in such detail. And I really appreciate the fact that you've done that for us today. Uh, it means a lot as well. And hopefully one day we'll get to see you out there performing uh, stand-up comedy at Juventus' stadium as well. That would be the dream. <laughs> That's the dream. We've got to get over to Juventus and then we, we've got to get Millie over to Tokyo so that every, all of us have been there. That's the most important thing. But yeah, listen, it's been an absolute pleasure, guys. I'm so glad I bumped into you, Hamza, at the, the event we were at on Friday. And, uh, you know, I told you I brought my nephew along to that event. I wanted him to meet, uh, you know, um, people who are chasing their dreams, people who do things that are difficult outside of their comfort zone, people like yourself who, you know, are trying to make something and do something. Like, I want him to be exposed to people like like that and know that, you know, he can do anything in the world that he wants to. So, um, you know, thanks for thanks for being there, man. And it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you both. Thank you for having me, guys. No, Thank you well. very much. Uh, Millie, I'll let you close out the podcast. That's all right. That's fine. Just a massive thank you again, Atif. And also, if anyone is listening, like I said before, there's so much to take from this episode, so much to learn from people like Atif. Like, what a story as well. So, yeah, massive thank you again. And if you did like the podcast, if you did like listening, like always, please share. Please just show, even if it's one person, even if it's a family member, it's it'll be great for us. Um, but, yeah, thank you all again for listening. Have a great day and goodbye.